everyone. Welcome to Detoxicity. My name is Mike Joseph, and I hope you're all safe, healthy, and taking care of yourselves and your loved ones. I've been thinking about the podcast tagline, uh, by men, about men for everyone, and I hope that doesn't sound super exclusive. I remember hearing from a friend who'd listened after the first few episodes, and she mentioned that this sounded like a boys club, not in a bad way, but she said she felt like she couldn't or shouldn't be part of the conversation. Even though this podcast is about men and masculinity, my hope is that anyone who listens, regardless of gender, can take away something valuable. If anyone has any topics that they would like to cover, if anyone has any topics that they would like for me to cover, or if you have any suggestions for the podcast or for me as a host, don't hesitate to leave a comment about Detox on your podcast host of choice. You can also shoot me a DM on Instagram at It's Mike Joseph or email me at detoxpod at gmail.com. Chris Bullard is the founder of Sound Mind Live, a nonprofit organization that aims to amplify the conversation around mental health via music. In this episode, Chris and I discussed a timeline of events that led to his founding this organization. He talks about his time as a touring musician, his history of manic episodes, and eventual bipolar diagnosis, being an emo kid, and the stigma that even the medical community places on mental health. You'll also pick up a couple of tips for healthy living for your good measure. So lock in and get ready to hear Chris Bullard. I'm Chris Bullard, founder and director of Sound Mind Live. So we're a nonprofit organization focused on really ending the stigma surrounding mental health and mental illness all through the power of music. So working with musicians who want to tell their story and are passionate about the cause of mental health to really build empathy as this is a conversation that needs to be normalized in society. And if the more comfortable people feel talking about it, the quicker they're going to be to be able to get support. And then in everything we do, we work with mental health organizations who provide direct services like support groups, crisis text lines, and try to ensure that through our events and campaigns with artists, we're helping people get those access to resources. I lead the organization. Uh, We've been around for like a year and a half, but I mean, in terms of who I am more broadly, I mean, I, right after college, I was a touring musician and I played music my whole life. So, I mean, music is just part of my identity. My dad played music. His whole side of the family played music. And so, you know, I'm playing music as my own source of therapy all the time. And obviously that led to to founding Sound Mind. I'm also someone with lived experience with mental health issues. So I live with bipolar disorder, was diagnosed in my mid-20s. And, you know, that has its own arc in terms of where I've come in terms of dealing with that in my own life and and the relationships around me. Beyond that, you know, grew up in LA, moved to New York City about six years ago to get an MBA and, you know, find the next path in my life and someone who enjoys travel and adventure. And recently, since there's not a lot of like travel to be done, my adventure has been in the kitchen, trying new recipes with my girlfriend and going on walks around the neighborhood, trying to find all the little nooks and crannies. So finding adventure in very different ways. So yeah, that's a little about me. Right on. So growing up in, do you feel like being a musician was kind of like hereditary or was it something that you were able to find independently of your dad's side of the family being musicians? I don't think I would have found it had it not been for my dad but I definitely took it upon myself to kind of develop that. So my dad was like a touring musician in the USO. So playing for the troops. Um, And 
but that was like much younger in his life. And by the time he had me kind of moved on from that. But when I was like three or four years old, they bought like a little toy keyboard and like that immediately became like my first toy that I really loved and was always playing on. And then we had a piano. So it was always around, but interestingly, like my dad didn't play a lot of music around the house. He didn't like listen to a lot of music in the car. My mom, you know, my parents both listened to music like everyone does, but they weren't like always listening to music or performing it. So it was kind of like this seed that was planted with this piano I got. And then just always, I was like, I want to be in bands and I want to, you know, always be listening to music and writing music. And that, that seed, like, who knows how it actually sprouted. So from there, was it always like a dream of yours to be a professional musician or were you just kind of like, oh, I've got this piano. I'm going to tinker around the house and maybe play a couple of recitals and, you know, do high school band or whatever it is and, and then do something else. Yeah, I think my, I was always like a big dreamer. I guess when you're a kid, everyone is, but (laughs) no, I mean, I really wanted to play guitar and my parents were like, you're going to play piano. You know, it's like the classic story of like, you're going to learn the theory and you know, you look back on it and you're glad you learned the theory. But at the time I was like, ah, piano is so boring. And I was like, (laughs) so I always wanted to be in bands. I didn't know if like where that would lead. I was just, I was always into like songwriting and expression versus the type of piano that I was learning was, you know, learning Bach and Haydn and, you know, just performing these, you know, straight ahead classical pieces. And so when I got into like middle school and high school and started joining bands pretty quickly, I was like, Oh, this is pretty cool. And I think by the time high school rolled around, I was like, Oh, I could, I could definitely do this for a living. And, that's when I was like starting to really like try to get the bands I was in to do something a little more than, than just be like the high school talent show band. How does that then parlay itself into a career? Like what was the, the step from you becoming Chris in high school bands to Chris professional musician? I mean, that's an interesting one. And I'm, I'm actually curious to hear a lot of, you know, how other musicians step into that because for a lot of them, it's like they're trying to pursue it and then they kind of eventually get into it. For me, my parents were very adamant about college and like, if you go to college, after college, you can kind of weave your own path, but we really want you to go to college. So I kind of like, I don't want to say gave up on it, but really deprioritized it during college it was kind of like in high school, if my band made it great, but then by the time college rolled around, I was like, Oh, I guess, you know, maybe I'll work in the music industry and maybe, you know, I'll just play. I played as a musician for hire. So I was like playing around LA clubs and like for like pop musicians as like a studio musician. And then it wasn't until after college, like the first week out of college, I was actually like taking mushrooms with friends and <laughs> it was, it was a group of epiphany. It was an epiphany. It was a mushroom led epiphany says the guy who runs a mental health organization, which at the end of the day, psychedelics, mental health, not totally. A lot of psychedelics have been shown to reduce de- depression. And I know. 
(laughs) (laughs) Um, So anyway, everyone on the hike that we went on played an instrument or sang, and I was like, a light bulb went off. I'm like, you guys, we should start a band. And the drummer that, I mean, we were all kind of jamming together informally, but I was like, you guys, we could really do this. And the drummer was actually Willie Nelson's youngest son. And, you know, I was like, it would be foolish. Like, I've always wanted to do this. I'm jamming with these guys. His name's Micah Nelson. He's fantastic. He's in several bands now that are doing pretty well. And, you know, I was like, it'd be foolish not to pursue this, particularly now that I'm graduating college. And so it was really like, kind of like getting over the fear of just like saying like, you know what, guys, we should do this. And just taking so let's backtrack a little bit so growing up in la which you grew up in los angeles proper or like a a burb or in in the suburbs so in the san fernando valley which if you watch clueless it's the valley takes 20 (laughs) minutes to get everywhere a lot of strip malls but also a lot of diversity a lot of like socioeconomic diversity it was it was a cool place to grow up overall. Like looking back on it, I liked growing up there. Okay. And typical like nuclear family, mom, dad. Mom, dad, me. I'm an only child. That's like the. Oh, wow. Um, I don't need very many of those. Yeah. There's not, not too many of us. We're, we're a rare breed. <laughs> there's an immediate bond when you meet another only child. It's like, oh, you too. You get it. Like, you know, all of the pain and the benefit of being an only child. Right. So yeah, it was, and it was a very nuclear family because it was us three and my, both my parents' relatives were in the Midwest. So we didn't have like immediate family right around. So it was a lot of like holidays with family, friends and things like that. Right. Um, but, it, but yeah, it was, it was a good, you know, very loving family, good place to grow up. Cool. What did you feel in retrospect did you feel any sense of mental, you know, any kind of mental health issues in in your childhood? You know, I mean, I think the closest thing to point to is angst, like the teenage angst that a lot of people feel. Like I was, you know, relating it to music, like I I was an emo kid in in, (laughs) in middle school and high school. I mean, in middle school, I was basically just listening to whatever music my friends listened to. So it was like, if I was hanging out with my rap friends, I was listening to rap. If I was listening, you know, so I was into like whatever. Right. But when, it, when I finally kind of like adopted a genre, it was like, I was into emo and it was because I was like feeling emotion so deeply and so much angst. And like, I was obviously a very expressive person and didn't know how to really express that and you know I, di- I didn't have anything severe happen any like severe depression or anything like that in in like my teenage years but I do think that that I had like a darker side that I would feed that you know I think you can kind of point to like it was a community of people who like really felt emotions deeply who are often more susceptible to to mental health issues sure Sure. So moving back, you know, moving forward again. So you're now in a band and did you, did you folks ever get like, you toured, 
but did you get like signed? No. So we, we toured a lot. We never got signed. We had an agent at William Morris at WME who was repping us basically like pro bono because he took a liking to us. We were kind of like his passion project and he, he booked us on a couple two national tours and then we we booked our own like west coast tours that we did and you know it was a mix like because we weren't signed i mean you know we self-released some albums and it was a lot we would we did a tour where we were opening for micah nelson's older brother lucas right so yeah lucas nelson and promise of the real and that's just when they were getting off the ground now he did like Star is Born with like Bradley Cooper and he's done a lot of bigger things. At that time, he was like just building his following. So, but he was drawing a crowd. So we, you know, we'd play to like three, 400 people and we'd be the opening act and like super exciting, like to be in a band touring and actually playing to that many people, especially when you're not signed. But then we do like a follow-up tour where we would headline and there'd be like 30 to 40 people in the audience or like maybe even no one there in certain places, which it's funny. Like, you know, you grow up and you imagine like, Oh, I'm going to work in the music industry as a, as an artist. You have this vision of like, Oh, all artists are like the artists I see, but like really the typical artist experience is like maybe breaking even and kind of like what we did, like some tours you're opening for a band and it's great. Other tours kind of sucks until you, really stick with it and we were together only like two years before we broke up and you know it it was too soon before i like really built momentum why'd you break up internal band dynamics (laughs) (laughs) kind of a common story that's a very uh very diplomatic answer yeah internal band dynamics Um, (laughs) (laughs) yeah you know we had (laughs) we had we had a, a couple different songwriting teams and two singers, which is already complicated and personal differences and s- creative differences that just like weren't resolved. And, you know, if you're touring in a, in a small, you know, we were in like a small RV that we were touring in and that's, we were six people in an RV and like after a few tours that gets, if your personalities aren't mesh- meshing, it's like, it's not going to work. Yeah, not going to work. So we just kind of decided to go our, our own separate ways. So at that point, was it like, okay, I'm going to look for another gig as a musician or I'm just going to look for another gig altogether? For me, I mean, it, it was that question. At the time, I thought I was getting so old. You know, I went through that classic thing that I think a lot of people do in their mid-20s. So I was, I think I was 25 at that point. And so I was starting to see like, you know, some of my friends already getting married, but like some of my friends starting to become like really successful and everyone's on their own trajectory. And I was kind of like, you know, maybe like I kind of did the music thing. Maybe I'm not cut out for it. And I started looking, you know, other places to pursue. I I was working in a startup like part-time while I was in LA that was kind of taking off. And so started like focusing and like, working in the startup world at the time rather than focus on, on doing music, looking back kind of like, Oh, you foolish young child. (laughs) Um, 
like I'm, I'm 33 now and I'm like, Oh my God, I was so young, but right you know, at the time you think like, Oh man, like I tried that like two years is so long at that point. And you think like, Oh man, I really went for it. And I, I put so much into it and like looking back, I'm like, man, I could have just like started another band. Like we had, we had a, an agent who was like passionate about us. So, you know, live and learn, but also no regrets at the same time. It's all good. Hindsight's 2020. Good. Did your, so the episode that you had, did that happen while you were touring or after or before? That happened after. So I, when we, like I mentioned, I think I was 25 when we started touring. My first, I'll say official bipolar episode was when I was 27 when, you know, it was like a period of a lot of stress. I had left my job, was like in financial hardship and, you know, a lot of stress can be a trigger for mental health issues. And that set off my first bipolar episode where I was actually hospitalized. I had a manic episode and was hospitalized for 72 hours. But in college, there was a time when I smoked marijuana and like something wasn't right. Like I thought it was laced or something. And you know, this was like, at the time I didn't know what was going on. Looking back, it was obviously like a little bit of a mental health break that was triggered by marijuana. And, you know, I just, it, it was like a little far out of the norm of what most people experience. And it was, it was like looking back on it, it was definitely like a small manic episode but didn't kind of put the pieces together. So I was like 27 and actually got hospitalized and diagnosed for it. And this is me speaking ignorantly. Like how does that manifest itself? What, what I know quite a few people who are diagnosed bipolar, but I don't know necessarily what the signs are or, or what, you know, what triggers it or, or anything like that. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, so broadly, I mean, bipolar disorder, essentially, you know, it used to be called manic depressive disorder. So you, it's, you experience extreme moods, either manic episodes or depressive episodes. You know, depressive episodes look a lot like depression, manic episodes, which I'm more prone to. And also some, some people don't experience both. I tend to more experience the manic side. And a manic episode, essentially, you experience racing thoughts and high levels of energy, which, you know, people call it like the creative mental illness as well. Like people, a lot of musicians, a lot of writers, a lot of artists um, have lived with bipolar disorder because when you have an elevated mood and you have racing thoughts, you're kind of connecting dots and experiencing emotions deeply and you have a lot of energy. So like you might stay up really late, like working on something and it's, you know, a period of a lot of creativity, but the signs that it's kind of going too far and I'll speak for myself because everyone experiences, you know, like any mental health issue, everything's different for everyone. I'll speak for myself and kind of what tend to be common things like, I'll end up staying up, like losing sleep, like a couple nights in a row. And then obviously, you know, my mental function is a little impaired at that point. And so that kind of aggravates it. 
And so then, not sleeping at all or sleeping um, very little? It could be not at all, but I mean, for me, it could even be like, okay, maybe it's a few nights of like three to four hours, but that's three to four hours because like it's 2 a.m. and I'm like, oh my God, I never thought that this thing about this thing or like, oh my God, I texted that person and they might in interpret it this way. And like everything I'm like interpreting in a much more deep, thoughtful way. And like, but the, the, the part where I think people slip into a manic episode is their brain like can't keep up with these thoughts. And you're, you're, you start to connect dots that might not be rational. You're saying things that don't make sense to other people. <laughs> like they make coherent sense in your own mind even, but you just can't express that in a, in a coherent way. And as a result, your actions become manic and not able to be like understood. For me in my first episode when I was 27, interestingly, I was like, I, I kept saying to my girlfriend at the time, like, I need to go, go to New York or I'm going to die. And like, in my mind, there was like logical steps that were leading me to that conclusion. And, but it really made, didn't make a lot of sense why I would, and I kept repeating it. And I was like, I need, I need to go, I'm going to walk to my parents' place. And my parents at the time lived like 80 miles away. And I was like, I'm just going to go walk there. And I just had like the energy and like felt like I was on like a spiritual journey to go, you know, and that's another thing a lot of people experience, like because they're experiencing all these elevated thoughts and connections in their mind, it, it tends to bring in like an element of spirituality, not for everyone, but for some people. Okay. Um, so anyway, that's kind of how it manifests in terms of like, elevated mood like in terms of a manic episode like elevated mood racing thoughts and then kind of like connecting these dots and then you know the the issue is that you know that's very startling for people around you if you're going into a workplace like people don't know what you're going to do next you know people with mental illness are rarely violent but in rare cases like if you're not understanding why things are happening or you're jumping to conclusions as to why they're happening. It can create, you know, acts of violence, but that's in like very, very rare, rare cases. Sure. Usually like people are more prone to hurt themselves than anyone else. So did, was it someone where, did that happen where people kind of like, yo dude, like what's wrong? Like did, did it, cause some people, like the two times I've been hospitalized, it was definitely at someone else's direction. But I do know that people sometimes are like, oh, this is something crazy happening here. I need to check myself into the hospital. Was it like, uh, you know, was it people recognizing signs and being like, bro, check yourself out? Yeah, definitely. And I think this is the issue. This comes to the issue of like stigma reduction and mental health education of why sound mind exists and what really needs to happen is I was 27. And like, at that point you would think that I'd be educated enough to understand that this is not normal and it's okay to tell other people that like I'm experiencing not normal things and even maybe know like, Oh, this sounds like bipolar disorder. Like if you're ex experiencing signs of a hernia, you're kind of like, oh, maybe this is like a hernia and I should be yeah. checked out. With mental health issues, like, you know, maybe depression is one unique thing because we all kind of 
use it openly, but a lot of mental health issues, people don't know, you know, there's a misunderstanding about what OCD is and like a stigma because we throw that term around. But, you know, at the time, like I wasn't aware of what that was. Whereas now if I'm experiencing some of these signs, like early on, I'm like, it's not like I'm even going to have an episode. I'm kind of like, oh man, that was kind of manic the way I was acting like the last like 30 minutes to an hour. Like I need to like take a step back or maybe I should call my therapist. But at the time, like I didn't have that awareness. So it was really the people around me at that time. Like I mentioned, I think like I was with my girlfriend who was yeah. just like, Chris, you're, you're acting pretty weird. Like I'm going to call your parents. And then I called my parents and they're like, yeah, Chris is like, Chris doesn't act like this. This is a little weird. And so it just got escalated to the point of like, okay, we're going to, we're going to call people and get you hospitalized so they can figure out what's going on. So stigma is rooted in, it's rooted in different things for different people. And, and the fear of being diagnosed, the fear of sort of having this label put on you, you know, there, there's different, reasons that people avoid that what was your reason for sort of of like were, you were conscious that something was going on but just didn't want to get it checked out like am i am i understanding that correctly or, or was it just like yeah well i think this is an issue with men the mental health system in general that i still feel and it is a part of stigma that we don't talk about a lot, but mental health is mental health issues are deemed as mental illness. And immediately what you're saying is there's something wrong with wrong. you. Yeah. And the experience though, that you're having with bipolar disorder and in all the support groups I've gone to, I think this is predominantly the case. It's like, Yes, it is an issue when it's impeding your ability to function. And yes, it's an issue when it's negatively impacting those around you. But the things you're experiencing, like, there's a lot of, like, beautiful enlightenment, beautiful creativity, beautiful things I'm, like, realizing. And, but the question is more, that the questions you get is more around, like, how do we fix you? Like, what's the medication we get you on? As opposed to listening and, like, let me understand you. Like, what are you experiencing that I'm not experiencing? How can we talk about it and learn from it? And, you know, that goes beyond mental health. That's any community that's been marginalized. It's like coming at it from a, a lens of understanding as opposed to we need to fix you. And I think that, speaking from my own experience now, I think that was what prevented me from kind of being more open about it was really holding on to this. Like not everything I'm experiencing is totally negative. And there are things I'm journaling about when I'm manic that are quite deep and eloquent and some songs I'm writing that are pretty amazing. That's not to say that like I need to be manic to do those things. It's just to say that like what, why not explore some of those ideas and have a conversation about it? Which is why I think, you know, things like therapy are so beautiful. It's more about like, let's open you up. Let's open up this conversation. 
And I'm a big proponent of like, it's not just about taking medication, it's about therapy, it's about finding support groups of other people that are experiencing similar things. And it's everything so that you're getting like the most out of whatever experience uh, you're having. So the impression I get from you is that you're pretty evolved. Like, was there ever any kind of like, macho kind of like uh i don't need therapy i don't want to do this like is was there any sense of getting help being in affront to your masculinity at all that's a good question so i'm just trying to reflect if it's directly to my masculinity i i think i'm fortunate that a lot of my male friends have a very open, vulnerable side to them. And I've chosen them that way. But earlier on in my life, there were friends that didn't. And when I was diagnosed, I think was like kind of an overlap period where I still had some of those friends. And those are definitely the people who at the time I was not opening up to like, and it was just like, a, Oh, they're like the way. And, and sorry, like the, I think the way they acted as individuals was tied to like kind of this cultural idea we have around macho masculinity and, and that entailing like not having vulnerable conversations. You know, there's other aspects of just like not wanting to go to a support group because I see support groups on TV and <laughs> oh, I don't want to be that guy standing in a circle saying, hi, my name's Chris. Yeah which is like totally different than how it actually was in my actual experience. But like, I think that was less tied to the masculinity, but I do think the masculinity played a factor in, in some of the friendships that I, that I have and who I open up to. So what's your regimen, I guess now, like what do you do to kind of, after you had this hospital experience, did you just like start reading books and Googling and, or, you know, did you, what was your process? to kind of begin to regulate yourself and understand more about uh, about bipolar disorder and, you know, just kind of like work on sort of a plan to m recognize and manage it, I guess. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I think I went through and a lot of people go through like a stage of kind of like denial and then acceptance. Um, and a part of the acceptance is really like, this is almost like a new part-time job I'm taking on for the rest of my life. <laughs> it's like, cool, every night I got to take my medication, but also I've got to regu regularly exercise. I've got to get enough sleep. I've got like, which are all like things I should have been doing anyway, but now it's like, okay, if I don't do this stuff, it's a little more severe for me because of my predisposition genetically and like, which is literally like a health issue. But like you asked my girlfriend, like my natural tendency probably because I live with bipolar disorder is like, I love staying up late. I love like working and being creative into the night, but like every night at the same time, I'm like, it's bedtime, like a, like a kid, you know, and like, <laughs> and I'm pretty regimented about it and I'm pretty regimented about exercise and um, going to therapy and things like that. And I've just had to become like a more regimented person, which isn't 
my natural tendency wasn't my natural tendency. So I've had to adapt in that component. And then reading, I've learned more personally. I think people get knowledge in different ways. I'm a very experiential learner. Like I could read a same in in school. I didn't learn anything in school. And it's probably a function of also why I run my own organization. Like I just, I want to learn on the spot. Like, so like, and some of that honestly for me and bipolar disorder was trial and error of having more than one episode, but like more what I mean by experiential learning was like going to support groups, going to therapy, talking to other people. And, and I think I've learned a lot more that way personally, but I think for some people they can sit through a book and absorb it and apply it. And that's amazing. And there's a lot of great books out there on everything under the sun for mental health. If you have bipolar disorder, I recommend Kay Jamison. She's the best. All right. Do you think, so revealing this to other people, because I'm thinking about friends of mine who are diagnosed uh, with bipolar and they are some of like the nicest, sweetest people that I know. Do you think that there are people without knowledge of what mental health issues can be that will hear, oh, this guy's got, you know, some mental health challenges and think like, oh, he's like unstable and crazy and like that kind of thing. Do you still experience that at all from others? Not, not that I'm aware of, you know, who knows what people say behind closed doors, but no one is, I think a lot of the fears around, you know, part of the fear is like, what's someone going to say when I open up? And I can say like, I have not once had a bad experience opening up. To At the same time, I think a lot of the fear is what happens when I'm not there, particularly at a workplace. I've been fortunate to work places that are very liberal, very open. In New York, I've worked in the nonprofit world where like people are more sensitive. I think, there's a big worry. Like I know people with bipolar disorder that work in like finance or law and there's definitely still a stigma there about opening up and a culture that like demands certain things that might not even mesh. Like, Hey, I need to take a mental health day. Like some companies like view that as like, okay, that's bullshit. Right. Um, but that's like a very real thing for someone with bipolar disorder who's just saying like, hey, I can be super productive for four days, but like honestly this one day, not every week, but like right now I need a mental health day because I'm like, you know, and you know, you can always say like I need to take a sick day, but like in an ideal world, you want to just be able to say like, I need a mental health day. Like, right, be honest, yeah. And, and I think that that fear is definitely real and I think some of it is also just people aren't trained to, to know how to deal with that stuff. And they don't know, like they don't know the facts. Like, is that person dangerous? Is, you know, like the response might be nice in person of like, oh, thank you so much for opening up and telling your story. But like, okay, now if like, okay, if you just opened up and I don't work with you or I not close to you. I don't need to research. I'm just thankful you, you're a person that shares. But if I'm like on your team or I manage you, um, it's like, okay, like, can he still do his work? Like, 
Is he stable or she stable? There's like a lot of other questions that come with that. And not everyone's kind of equipped to, to deal with that so far. What would you suggest for someone who is in a situation like that where they're worried about being in their workplace or, you know, with their family or loved ones or whatever and have a diagnosis, but they're afraid to be open about it? You know, I think the first place is start small. Like, think of the closest person who you haven't told who would be the next, who would be the first one you would. Tell that person. Because for me, it started small, and now it's just kind of like, I'm an open book, take me or leave me. I think the trickier, you know, and, and you know, it, it's tough because some people live in situations. I f I'm very fortunate that I have loved ones who accept me for who I am. I think sooner or later what happens is people need to find that out. If for some reason you have loved ones in your life who are not going to support you, you can't just bottle it up. You need to know that and then go find support. And if you don't have a lot of friends, go find a support group because those people will provide you love and friendships. And like, there are places you can go and it's like the fear of not opening up in the long term is it, it, it's protecting yourself and it makes sense. It, it seems like it makes sense, but it's, it's going to be more damaging in the long run. And then on the work side, it's a really tricky one and I don't have the right answer. I, a lot of people in support groups I go to, they, I think finding out like your rights as a worker that like, you know, you can't be fired for having a mental health issue is really empowering. And then, and then going from there and kind of learning more about, you know, what others are doing. Maybe if there's anyone else in your organization and just how your organization approaches it. So this is a two part question. <laughs> what brought you from LA to New York and is it related to you beginning sound mind live? So it, it is not directly related. So the, the, the easy answer of what brought me to LA to New York was I always wanted to live in New York at some point. And after I had a, a, an episode, I had like started my own company in LA, which I ran for like a year and a half. And then was kind of at a transition point where I was like, I, I want to do something different and I don't know what, and I, I was like, am I going to go into the music industry? Am I going to like work in the startup world? And then through a friend, there was a job opportunity in New York, a consulting company that it was in like the clean tech space, which is where like the startup I worked at was. And wasn't something I was like excited about, but I was like, but I always wanted to go to New York so I could get excited about that. And like it paid pretty well. And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to do it. And, you know, I ended up getting my MBA here and then working in the nonprofit space. So it was kind of, it was a stepping stone just to like be in New York. And then there were other stepping stones that kind of led to sound mind later on that kind of wove the threads of like all the social impact work I was doing with my love for like music and mental health. So what was the final like kickoff moment? When were you like, okay, I got to do this. This is exactly what I'm going to do. And we're going to start this thing. Yeah, so I was, when I was like working, so I got my MBA, I was working in the nonprofit world here and just like very like stable point in my life and like was like, want to give back. So I started getting involved with the National Alliance on Mental Illness 
which is like the largest grassroots organization for mental health. And I founded a music support program for them here in New York, which was just like a small group, people getting together, talking about mental health through the lens of music. So we'd like play, play music, talk about music. And it was just, you know, one, it was just fun, like singing songs and bringing people around. But then also just like seeing how music is this thing that really brings people together and fosters the same type of connection that the stigma around mental health, breaking down the walls of stigma around mental health really requires that kind of connection and empathy building that music does. Because music, at the end of the day, it's all about storytelling and expressing inner emotions. And it's perfectly built to start a movement around mental health. And I was talking, so I was, I was in this band and like very involved with like Willie Nelson's family through his son and Willie Nelson had started Farm Aid, which if you don't know, you know, it's this movement around supporting family farmers through music. And the initial vision for Sound Mind was we're going to create the Farm Aid of mental health and set out to start doing events that could grow year after year and become the Farm Aid of mental health. And so we did the first event in partnership with National Alliance on Mental Illness in New York City and you know, just a few hundred people, but like sold out. HBO became a sponsor and just everyone, you know, I got a bunch of volunteers in, in both like the music and mental health space to help out. And like the people involved, the artists involved, mental health organization, everyone was just like, this is incredible. Like, you know, more than any other time in my life, it was like, people were just like, you're on to something. Like, kind of like, keep down this path. Like, the world needs this. So, you know, we just started doing bigger shows and more shows around New York. And, you know, it just kind of, you know, and now it's grown to more than just events. And, you know, like most organizations, like, you, you have an idea of what it is, but it kind of grows into what it's supposed to be, which obviously it's a new organization. It's still growing, but it's been amazing to see yeah, it kind of grow its own legs and, and fill the gaps that need to kind of be filled to just fill the mission of ending mental health stigma and getting people re- access to resources. What's been the feedback like from the from the fan community and the artist community? I, I think I'm probably more interested in the artist community just because there have been so many studies that have come out in the past couple of years that indicate how disproportionately creative people, artists, musicians are affected by a mental illness? Yeah. Yeah, and I think, yeah, there is the the biggest one that I think is noted is from Record Union, which was that 73% of musicians report anxiety and depression, which is, you know, that's an overwhelming majority. Yes. Um, Which was, that came out around the time we started Sound Mind, which was one of the key things around, wow, this is... A community that obviously one need, needs help themselves and two can be a beacon of, of light for other communities. I think you know the the feedback from the fan community and the artist community is actually a little similar. I think what and it, and it's something I don't know if I would have thought would have been the result of sound mind when I started it. There is this separation between fan and artist that happens where 
in, in, the, in our regular experience of music where the artist is kind of idolized and it's the artist on the stage and the fans in the audience and, you know, there's a sense of allure and we like to see, you know, the artists like dancing around on stage or being weird on stage, but it's kind of a show and we're separate from it. Right. I think what sound mind does that we've heard from both fans and the artists is we kind of break down that wall. So not just the walls. I mean, and, and that's kind of related to breaking down the wall of stigma, but it's like, there is no wall. Like the fan and the artist, like we are both people, like we are both dealing with the same shit. We're both vulnerable. We're on stage. Yeah. We're performing, but like, this is coming from a real place of me dealing with the same stuff you're dealing with. And I think the feedback from artists has been that, you know, it's created our shows and have helped create like that intimate connection with art, with, with fans and audiences, you know, I would say like, not just fans, just anyone attending. And I think audiences have one appreciated that because obviously as a, as a fan getting to know an artist you love in a deeper way and connecting is really an amazing experience. And then also just saying, I think it's been nice to hear that it's created an easy way to get to know different mental health resources. So just in everything we do, we try to not like make it stuffy or like too technical. It's like, let's do performances and like, plug some mental health facts and have like a quick speaker on mental health who says like, if you remember three things today, remember these things and trying to do it in like an engaging way for an audience that might not necessarily go to a mental health talk, but they will go listen to their favorite artist podcasts or show like, you know, they, and I think that that's kind of what we've heard that we've been able to do well. And like, we're still learning. There's a lot of stuff we don't do well. I think we've had some duds, but like, I think that's, that's the nut we've like cracked and we're trying to like continue to be our secret sauce. Right on. So what, well, I know the answer to this question, I guess partially, but being that we can't really gather in public right now, what are you, you folks trying to do to kind of like loop around that yeah. So a lot of it is that challenge of like, how do you in a digital world break down that wall? Now, now it's not a stage and audience. Now it's like a screen and right. thousands right. of miles. <laughs> <laughs> but I think everyone can agree. Like, you know, we're in a world where like artists are connecting with fans in, in more intimate ways, even, you know, across the board and seeing an artist in their living room, is really intimate, even if it is on a screen. And, you know, so for us, I mean, we're, we're kind of focused on three things right now and they all kind of touch on that approach. One is advocacy events. So continuing to do what we were doing live, but in a, a, a virtual platform. So live stream events. So like we did one in April that I know you, you were doing all about. And then we're doing one uh, for World Mental Health Day in October which will hopefully be a much bigger version of that. So like a mental health music festival in virtual format. And, you know, to try to solve this, there's a live chat feature, but we're also going to create like breakout Zoom rooms where 
you're not just viewing the main festival, but you can also kind of like dive deeper into your own little community and have a more intimate conversation. The second thing we're doing that I kind of alluded to earlier is doing other types of digital media with artists. So like podcasts like this and interviews where beyond, you know, a show that we do with an artist, maybe they're interlacing a little bit here and there on mental health. But if you do a podcast for an hour, you can really get deep with someone and you know, like you're, like you're doing yes. such a good case, job. Case in point. <laughs> case in point, you are cracking Chris all open. Um, <laughs> but you know, like uh, doing that with artists and, and we're partnering with, with different organizations to do that. Like Talk House is a great music podcast that we're working with and just try, trying to do that through digital media. And then the last place is with, with workplaces. I talked about like, how important workplace mental health is. And right now is a time when a lot of corporate environments are thinking a lot about mental health. So like, I know you guys did the thing at at the orchard that was incredible. And so we've been doing similar events with performances and interlacing mental health content with, with corporate partners. Cause a lot of our events are, are, sponsored by corporate partners and we work with a lot of like, you know, labels and management companies. And so now it's like, okay, beyond the events piece, how do we actually like bring this into your own community with using music as a way to kind of break through the noise. And, and that's already, what's nice about that is like, you know, the corporate community, it already is kind of an intimate community that you can kind of step into. And now you're just kind of like further normalizing that conversation. So those, those are kind of like the three places we're focusing right now. Right on. In this new world, like, you know, it's all obviously new, but that's kind of the strategic direction we're going. What can people do if they want to support you and your cause? Like what, what the average person who's like, uh, I don't know a whole lot about mental health, but I do know that, you know, I'm feeling something or someone I know is feeling something and I know they're a really big fan of music. So how, how do I put all this together? Yeah. I mean, go to our website, soundmindlive.org. There's information on there on what we have upcoming and also join our mailing list. We have a weekly mailing list and you can also follow us on Instagram, which is at soundmind underscore live. So we're pretty active on mailers and on Instagram. And like, like I said, doing stuff with artists on Instagram, live performance, like smaller live performances and interviews and stuff like that, highlighting mental health resources. So I think that's a great first place. Obviously, if if people want to donate, they can donate on our site that helps support all of our missions and programs. And then if someone like needs help, let us know, like we don't provide direct services, but we work with all the organizations that do, whether it's if you're someone in the music community who needs help, or if you're some another human being who needs help, we can point you in the right direction because we deal with a lot of those cases too, where we don't provide the services, but we know where we, we can get you. Or And if, if music can be a support in that, you know, we also like to say like, if you're a musician or in the music community and you want to share your story, there's a place where you can contact us on our site and just like, let us know, like, I've dealt with mental health issues and I'd love to share my story. And we always love to hear that. Cool. So in this time, I I understand running, running something can take up a lot of mental space. What are you doing to make sure that you're good? 
aside from apparently cooking. Yeah, cooking, cooking's good. Music, obviously, literally right before this, you know, I was working like right until this. And then I had 30 minutes where I was going to like, there was another like item on my checklist. And I was like, you know what? I think I need music. And I wrote half a song. I was like, that's, that's great. <laughs> Pretty awesome. Um, but, but for me, I mean, just that, just feeding that creative part of me is very helpful. I meditate and run. Those are like my two like physical and spiritual things. I think for me, someone said this once. There's, I don't know if you know the jazz artist Casa Overall. Mm-mm. Uh, Definitely recommend checking him out. Um, All right. He's, uh, I, we did a, a panel with him up at Harlem Jazz Museum. And uh, he said that every day he tries to do something. He also lives with bipolar disorder. He says every day he tries to do something creative, spiritual, and physical. And if he can do that, he, he's okay. And, I and like, it, it definitely makes sense because when you break down all the things I do to try to take care of myself and a lot of us try to do, that's a lot of it. And, you know, spiritual could be, there's a lot of things that can be spiritual. Some people pray, some people meditate, some people just take a moment of quietness from the wildness of the daily life. But yeah, I find those things all really help. I Meditation has always been kind of an interesting topic for me because it's always something that I've wanted to do, but I can't turn my brain off or turn it down in a lot of cases enough to like sit still for two minutes without being like, Oh, I got to do something. Oh, oh, this is a good idea. I got to write this down or, you know, so that actually has been like probably my biggest struggle recently. Is you, are, Like, are you trying to meditate? Yes. Or you, yeah. Like, so I'm, I'm a recent, I've gotten into it over the last year. So I can't say I'm like some expert. You're not a guru. Yeah, I'm not a guru, but I am someone who, who struggles to quiet their mind. And I've found, you know, you've probably heard it before, but it's literally like, it's practice. It's like learning a new instrument. It's like, I did it for, it wasn't even like I perfected two minutes before I went to 10, but it was like, one, one of the guys, I listened to a podcast of, uh, his name is Joseph Goldstein, and he's like in like the mindfulness movement. And he's like, every time your mind wanders, just say, begin again. And like, that was really helpful. It's like, don't get down on yourself. It's just like, you know what? I wandered again, just time to start over. And that's okay. And like, eventually, like, the time until I had to say, begin again, again, like it got longer and longer. And like, you know, even if you make it to like five minutes, it's a win. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I was doing that for a while. I had that uh, headspace app yeah yeah i used that for a while yeah and uh, you know i used to run regularly before i got injured and can't really run anymore but i would my brain would be so tired or my body and brain would be so tired that it was nothing for me to sit for five minutes and actually meditate but since i don't have that to kind of like wear my brain out it's a little bit more difficult to you know to have it settle down yeah that makes sense those apps can be really good i I started with Headspace and I found it like very, like, I liked the instructiveness. I like just- Yeah. (laughs) I always kind of get a kick out of it. So my wrap up question is the same every show. 
what is the best piece of advice you have ever received? Don't be afraid to ask for feedback. That's um, a good one. I, yeah, this was a guy, like, I, after I got my MBA and I, like, was, he, he was, like, he was one of the first employees at PayPal. Like, he helped build PayPal. Oh, wow. Um, and, and now he's, like, one of the most successful investors in, like, the impact space. And he, he was a grad of my school. And I was, like, you know, that was his one piece of advice was, like, don't be afraid to ask for feedback because often we assume, you know, if you don't ask, people might not say, and, you know, they might, they might not say a good thing or a bad thing, but you'll just never know, like, was that good? Did I do a good job? Like, but if you ask for feedback, you know, it may hurt, but like the only way you ever improve at anything is by doing stuff wrong. Or, yeah, and, and you'll never know you know, sometimes it's obvious when we do stuff wrong, but sometimes you can iterate on your own development so much faster if you're just asking for more feedback and creating more feedback loops. And I was like, that's brilliant. It's like, <laughs> so many people like, don't do that. Like every time. Such a simple concept, but people don't do it. Yeah. Myself included. Yeah. I still like, I, I suck at, but like, yeah, every time you like, give a presentation. Like people could be like, Oh, that was really good. Thank you so much. Like we would learn a lot. Like I, I'd really like some feedback. Like, how was that? What, you know, what was good? What can I improve on? And like one, people appreciate that. You're like trying to improve your own stuff and it's not going to change. I realized too, as I started doing it, like it doesn't change the way people think about you. Like they're already thinking that stuff. So you might as well know it. Right. It just brings it into the open. Yeah, or they might be like, that was phenomenal. And then you're, it's like boosting your self-confidence. Right, right. I want to give a shout out to Chris Bullard for uh, being on the show. I really, really appreciate him taking the time out of his schedule to talk. Sound Mind Live is the name of his charity, the charity that he founded. And it is also the charity that I am designating as the charity of the week. If you want to know more about Sound Mind Live, please go to soundmindlive.org. Uh, you can also follow them on Twitter or Instagram at soundmind underscore live. That is S-O-U-N-D-M-I-N-D underscore live, L-I-V-E. Uh, you can be on the lookout for upcoming events that they're going to have. And um, again, they're just a fantastic organization. And Chris has a great story. So I want to thank him for sharing it with us. If you want to know more about detoxicity, you can follow me on Instagram at it's Mike Joseph. And uh, we're on Facebook at facebook.com slash detoxpod. I would appreciate if you subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you are using. And also feel free to leave a comment, a rating. Uh, if you have any questions about the podcast, if you'd like to be on it, if you know someone that you think would be a good fit to be on it, if you have any suggestions for topics that you would like covered in upcoming episodes, hit me up. It's Mike Joseph. On Instagram, again, you can DM me, or you can email me, detoxpod at gmail.com, or you can hit me on Facebook, whichever. I am easily reachable.
Anyway, um, that's it for this episode of Detoxicity. Once again, I hope that you all stay safe and healthy and vigilant. And before I go, I want to give a quick shout out to Calvin Williams. Calvin made the music that uh, starts and ends each show. And uh, he did it for free. And he's a wonderful guy, one of my best friends, uh, celebrated a birthday recently, and I really, really want to give him a shout out. Uh, he hosts a radio show called Lush Vibes Radio, which is on Radio Free Brooklyn, every Tuesday night starting at 11 p.m., where he plays relaxing, um, ambient music. So make sure you check that out, RadioFreeBrooklyn.org, every Tuesday night at 11 p.m. Eastern. And uh, with that, I am Mike Joseph. Thank you for listening. We'll catch y'all next week. Peace.